0: revelation is a book about what the end of the world say with me the revelation is a book about what The the end of the world that's pretty exciting that's why it's at the end of the book And so far, we have seen a long description of what we call the tribulation. That is a term we get from Jesus to describe the last seven years of human history where God will allow his wrath to be poured out on the world. And as we've gone through this book full of symbol, full of uh, illustration and metaphor, uh, we've been breaking this down into 12 pieces of what we've seen through this tribulation. And we've actually hit all 12 now. So let me run through them very quickly for you to remind you. The first thing we believe what will happen is called the rapture of the church. That before these events take place, God's church will be caught up into heaven to be with him. We are not appointed to wrath. Therefore, we do not believe we will endure the wrath of God. Jesus took it on the cross for us. Number two is the rise of Babylon. There will be a worldwide global empire that takes over everything that is symbolically and maybe even literally called Babylon in the book of Revelation. So when the church is removed and God removes his restraint, the first thing that happens is worldwide tyrannical empire, which leads to number three, the ravage of God's people. Those who come to faith during this time, and also those who are of the house and line of Israel, will be persecuted, tormented, executed, driven from their homes, unable to participate in the economy. It's going to be a terrible time, which leads into the next one. Number four, the ruin of the planet God will begin to rain down plagues upon planet Earth. The water, the grass, the land will be devastated. There may even be some human involvement here where the Lord permits man to chase down his worst tendencies and, and even begin to destroy the planet that God had made him the steward of. Number five, the revenge of the devil. There's a supernatural aspect to what's going on here. There's a demonic dimension that is always at work, but God is going to unlock what's called the abyss, the bottomless pit, and allow Satan's worst demons that have been imprisoned since the book of Genesis to torment the world again. Number seven, that empire is going to be reorganized, the reorganization of the empire. This is when a single figure will emerge out of this enormous worldwide empire. There's going to be one man who steps up and says, I'm king now. I am now the, the God of this world and the Lord of this world. Everybody will be required to worship him and to serve him. He's going to put down whatever government structure there may be in the empire and establish his own. I actually skipped one, but it's, it's as good a place to put it as any. The refuge of the faithful. The God will provide a place in the wilderness where those of the house of Israel may flee to be preserved during this time. Because during number 8, skipping ahead again, the rule of the Antichrist, that's the Bible's name for that one figure that takes over the empire, the Antichrist, he is going to set up golden images of himself to be worshipped all over the world. And his assistant, the false prophet, will perform lying signs and wonders to take have everybody to take the mark of this Antichrist on their hand or their head. And without that, you cannot buy and you cannot sell, you cannot participate in the world economy unless you are worshiping this man. Number nine is the rot of the world. Not just the moral decay, which is real, but those plagues that the Lord sent down are going to continue. They're going to get worse and worse until the, the planet essentially becomes uninhabitable. This is all going to build the number 10, the rampage from Armageddon. You maybe know of Armageddon as the last battle of the world, and it kind of is, but it's also the location where the Antichrist will gather his armies. For what will begin as a civil war, this is not a peaceful, restful time. It's war, war, war until the end. He's going to, number 11, destroy his own capital city, which represents all of the the sinful materialism and sinful religion of the world. You know that evil destroys itself. It turns in upon itself, and that's what's going to happen. That great city will be destroyed until number 12, the return of Jesus. We read this last time, that those Antichrist armies will march upon that refuge in the wilderness that God will set up. And they will call upon Jesus as their Messiah as they should have on Palm Sunday, and Christ will descend from heaven. And we read last time of him absolutely destroying the armies of the Antichrist, arriving in Jerusalem, which is where we left him, standing in the ruins where an earthquake had come, splattered with the blood of his enemies, victorious over evil. And that army is when all the saints will go marching in, when we will return with our Lord to be with him. That's where we left it. The tribulation is over. The seven years of torment, Jesus said, the worst years the world has ever known. And if I didn't cut them short, everybody would die. But Jesus will cut it short after seven years. And what comes after that is what we're going to discuss today. The kingdom, with a capital K. We've been talking about kingdom come. Well, in these days, they are going to be talking about kingdom here. And before we get into our text today, I actually want to take the time to Analyze this biblical doctrine of the kingdom because there are different ways of looking at it that will color how we read this passage. So let's just affirm the fact, number one, Jesus will come to receive a kingdom on this earth. Zechariah 14.9, talking about the end of that battle, Zechariah 12-14 through 14 is called the Little Apocalypse, the Little Revelation, because it condenses the story into just a couple chapters. It says, the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. And it goes on to describe all the nations of the world bringing tribute to the Messiah, to Jerusalem. New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 25. Paul is talking about what's going to happen at the end. He says, then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For Jesus must reign... Until he has put all enemies under his feet. That might be a good title for today, actually. Jesus must reign. He must reign. He must rule. So the Bible talks an awful lot about this kingdom. Jesus, his whole Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of heaven. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He said it should be our top priority. The thing that concerns our mind the most. But the question that we have to ask Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the apostle said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's what they were looking for. So is it a literal kingdom like that that we're looking for? Jesus told the apostles there, he said, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons. He didn't say no. He just said, I'm not going to tell you when. But then again, in John eighteen thirty six, Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this world, yeah. right? So you've got these two things. And Revelation chapter 20 is going to describe the kingdom of God. It's going to describe it as an earthly kingdom that's going to last for a thousand years. But the question we have is, is this a literal kingdom? Is it a spiritual kingdom? Is it both? Is there like a now aspect and a future aspect of it? Spoiler alert, yes there is. But... Let's take a look at the the different ways of interpreting Revelation chapter 20 and this idea of the kingdom. They're all revolving around this word millennium, which you know means a thousand years. So what do you do with this writing about the thousand years, the millennium? There's three options theologically. Number one is the amillennial view. That means no millennium, no thousand years. That when John talks about the thousand year reign of Christ, this is purely symbolic. It leans into the fact that Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom of God is in your midst. Statements like that. The heart is more important than flesh. And that this is just heightened language to describe the kind of life that is available to a Christian. Or perhaps of the influence that the church ought to have around the world. They'll say, Jesus may return. And there's various views on this. Some people believe Jesus will literally return. Other amillennialists don't. They believe kind of this is it and this is going to be life forever. They say if anything else happens next, it's going to be heaven, not anything that takes place on this earth. That's the amillennial view. The next one is called postmillennial. Postmillennial, this means after the millennium or after the thousand year reign. These people believe that the kingdom that we read about describes the church age. And that it is up to the church to bring about the kingdom. That what we're going to read in Revelation chapter 20 describes the life that you and I live. And that eventually, if we can bring about the kind of kingdom that is described, then the Lord will roll up the sky like a scroll and we'll be able to move on into the eternal state. That once we have Christianized the globe, Jesus will return for us. And that can take a couple different ways. Some people believe that's why you've got to get out there and share the gospel as much as possible. Other people believe that's why Christians should seize the reins of power and dominate the globe so that Jesus can come back. The third option is premillennial. This view takes this passage literally. That there will be a worldwide rebellion under the Antichrist, followed by a literal return of Jesus and a literal reign on this earth for a literal 1,000 years. That everything that we're reading about happens before this millennium. We're not waiting for the kingdom to come after it's over. That as it is written, that's what we believe. So here's what I'll say. I think amillennialism fails to appreciate Number one, the Old Testament aspect of the kingdom. If you read Isaiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, any of these guys talking about the coming kingdom, they're very plain about what the expectation is. There's even boundary lines that are given. It talks about the kinds of things that are done. And the, the amillennialist has to believe those details mean nothing. And in fact, that the Israelites were mistaken in their expectation. And it even starts, I've, I want to be careful here, but I believe it starts to edge into even the prophets didn't quite know what they were talking about. That they, they thought it was going to be literal, but it's not. I also think they, they fail to appreciate Revelation chapter 20. But, of course, if you're not holding to a literal view of Scripture and a literal view of prophecy, you're not bound to the details. Post-millennialists, I think, fail to recognize the details that the Bible gives us about the return of Jesus. The Bible is abundantly clear that Jesus will return after a time of terrible, terrible trouble. Paul says the end cannot come unless the rebellion, the apostasy, comes first. Jesus said there will be a time that is so bad that no one could ever survive it. But don't worry, we'll cut it short and I'll return. The whole book of Revelation. Uh, but a post-millennialist has to believe that none of that is going to happen. That's just life. That's just how it is. But eventually it will get better and better and better until we finally you know, hit that, that target marker and the thermometer turns all the way red and then Jesus comes back. The problem with that is these people have a very stubborn triumphalism. Well, you believe that the gospel isn't power enough to change the whole world? You don't believe that the church ought to be having influence over righteousness and the government and things like that? Well, I didn't say anything about that. All I said was the Bible prophesies what it's going to be like at the end. We are in this church what's called premillennialists. We believe in the pre-tribulational, premillennial rapture of the church, the return of Jesus Christ before the thousand year reign. Because that is the plain reading of Scripture. If you were to just read this passage, not knowing all these other potential options, that's the option you would arrive at. Okay, Jesus is going to return and reign for a thousand years. That seems pretty straightforward. It is. I also believe that all the benefits you gain from the others are able to be accommodated by the premillennial view. A postmillennialist says, well, we believe that we ought to be actively sharing the gospel and trying to change the world for Jesus so that he can come back. I don't believe we have to do anything for Jesus to come back. That's in God's sovereign timing. But because he could come back at any moment, we better hustle. We better get it done. The amillennialist says things along the lines of, well, you're just, you're just looking for pie in the sky by and by. You're just waiting for it. You, you need to live the life that you've got right now and just in, enjoy the life that you're given. Well, we believe that too because in, if we believe in the rapture of the church, we believe that if the rapture has not taken place, then the end has not yet come. So it places us right in the middle to benefit from what these others think. And here's one more thing I'll throw out there. I said I wasn't going to say it for time's sake, but you know, here we go. Uh... <laughs> If you read the, the first church history written by Eusebius, it's a great book. But if you read Eusebius, he starts talking about the various church fathers. He talks about the various uh, beliefs that people had. And he starts talking about a guy named Papias. If you've ever bought a, a collection of maybe the oldest, sometimes they're called the Apostolic Fathers, writings, guys like Clement and Ignatius, Papias has some letters in there. He's one of like, the second generation of Christian leaders and teachers. And Eusebius is writing about him. He says, Papias was a direct disciple of John. So we really like what Papias had to say. Except for one thing. Papias believes in this silly idea that Jesus Christ is going to literally reign on the earth for a literal 1,000 years. They called it Kiliasm back then, from the Latin word for 1,000, Kiliasm. But he says, but poor Papias didn't realize that a couple hundred years after his death, the Roman Empire would become Christian, and that's what Jesus was prophesying. Therefore, we don't need Jesus to return anymore. Things are already looking pretty good. Well, that did not age very well, did it? That statement kind of aged like milk, didn't it? It also tells us that one of the men that we know for sure who learned under John, who wrote the book of Revelation, was dogged in his insistence that John intended this to be read as a literal thousand-year reign of Christ so this is how we're going to continue to read this is the kingdom spiritual yes it is Because everywhere Jesus is ruling and reigning in your life and in mine, you can say that's the kingdom. But we are still groaning and longing and waiting for the fulfillment, the consummation of the kingdom of God. We believe that Revelation gives us a loose narrative. It cycles and it circles in certain places, but it tells us these seven years of trouble followed by a thousand years of the kingdom. So that's enough out of me. Let's read this now. Revelation 20 verses 1 through 3. The last thing we saw was the birds being gorged with the flesh of Jesus' slain enemies. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Any y'all like to paint? Would you paint this for me, please? I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might deceive the nations, might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So we saw the Antichrist and the false prophet thrown into hell, thrown into the lake of fire, And maybe we wondered, what about the third member of that malignant trinity? What about Satan? What about the dragon? Well, Satan is bound with a chain. And the abyss, remember the abyss that was opened earlier and all the demonic locusts came out? It's God's demon prison at the center of the earth. Opens it up, hog ties Satan, and throws him down into the bottomless pit and locks the door. That's a pretty cool image, isn't it? That's amazing. What's going to happen for these thousand years? God intends to let the world see what life is actually like with Jesus as king. Without any deceiving or tempting influence from Satan. How about that? To live for a thousand years where not only is Jesus king, Satan is nowhere to be found. He's sealed up. He's bound beneath the earth. And there is no reason in this text to spiritualize these thousand years. Some folks say, well, a thousand is just a round number that means a long time. No, it's a real number that means a hundred times ten. It's a thousand years. Well, we know numbers are symbolic. So? God can't use symbolic numbers? How long did they wander in the wilderness for? Forty years. That's a number of judgment. Because God was trying to prove judgment. So why not have it just be a thousand years? An actual millennium. Satan will be bound. Now, there are those that say, you know, amillennialists and so on, that'll say, hey, we're living in the millennial kingdom right now. This is the kingdom of God. You're living it. You're experiencing it. Stop waiting for something to happen. This is it. I can see the sour look on a few of your faces. <laughs> really? This is God's kingdom? Can you honestly say to me that Satan is bound right now? Well, yeah, he can't touch the, he can't touch the Christian soul. That's not what it says. Didn't say you can't touch your soul. What does the Bible say? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against Power. principalities and powers and angels and demons of, right, of the kingdom of darkness. The God of this world, Satan says, has blinded or the Bible says has blinded their eyes. We are struggling against Satan. He's not bound. We're looking forward to that to happen. This is a test for the righteous nations of the world because that is who is going to populate this kingdom. I hope we all get a front row seat to watching the dragon, the seven-headed dragon, get tied up. You know, get his seven heads zip-tied real good and drop him into the, the, the abyss. And the righteous nations will be welcomed, will be welcomed into God's kingdom. This is from Matthew 25. Jesus describes this. And he says, when he comes, he's going to separate the nations like a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. And all the goats were thrown away into everlasting fire. But what about the righteous? Matthew 25, 34. The king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And they're going to say, Lord, we don't deserve this. What did we ever do? And he's going to show them his grace. You, you did this to the least of my brethren. You did it unto me. That's that wonderful passage. But what is it specifically describing? Entrance into the kingdom. There will be people who survive the tribulation. Obviously. There'll be those that survive the tribulation. Righteous and unrighteous. And the righteous, as it says in Matthew 25, will be invited to inhabit, repopulate, and fill up God's new world. Because Satan will be tied up for a thousand years. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also... I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life, and underline it, reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's in your Bible. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So John sees thrones, which is symbolic of the establishment of the government of the kingdom. Isaiah 9 says the government will be upon his shoulders. Well, here it is. The thrones. Yes, as we read in Revelation 19, Jesus Christ will rule as the sole king of kings for a thousand years from his capital city of Jerusalem. But the believers and the tribulation martyrs are going to come to life and rule and reign with him. That sounds so blasphemous if I came up with it. But I didn't. It's not only here in your Bible, it's all over your Bible. 2 Timothy 2 verse 12 says, If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we endure, we will reign with Him. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 through 3 says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? You will not judge angels. And Paul's point there is, so can't y'all just get along? <laughs> We're to judge angels. Revelation 3:21. The one who conquers Jesus said, I will grant with him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father. Conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. It's in your Bible that the saints will come back to life. Those of us that were raptured, who had died in in the Old Testament dispensation, those that are martyred during the tribulation period, will come to life, sit upon thrones, and form the governing structure of Jesus during the thousand-year reign of Christ. That's you, and that's me. That's pretty spectacular, isn't it? That's pretty awesome. So, we've encountered two groups of people here. We've got the resurrected and the glorified, immortal kings and queens of Jesus. And number two, the righteous nations who survived the tribulation. I'm going to read a longish section from Isaiah 65. You might want to turn there. This is one of the classic Old Testament passages about the kingdom. And I'm going to, to read it to you now and it gives us a sense of what it's going to be like during those days. Isaiah 65, verses 18 through 25. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. That's pretty wonderful, isn't it? But let's draw something out of that, that maybe you've missed. I've I've mentioned this before, and some of you all have come up with questions, so there's your passage for it. There will be normal life going on during the kingdom during the thousand-year reign of Jesus there will be marriage and childbearing there will be eating and drinking there will be work there will be death that's what's going to be happening for those that enter into the kingdom they're going to live out their normal lives but you see what's going to happen is Jesus is going to bless the world he's going to restore the world and people are going to Live longer. There's going to be blessings. He's going to take care of, of every single person. And even an old man who dies, or someone who dies at 100 years old, we're going to say, oh, he was so young. But what you're trying to see is there, is there is normal life. The nations are going to be repopulated and refilled with God's people. Ruled over by the immortal and undying saints and their Lord Jesus in Jerusalem. Not only will those saints have authority over the nations, they will have authority over the angels and a direct line to Jesus by the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is going to be like nothing else. This is going to be a time that the world has never seen, where evil is sealed up and bound beneath the earth, and the Son of God reigns in glory from Jerusalem. People are going about living their lives in a golden age of humanity, and the risen, resurrected, and glorified saints are their kings and queens. This is one thing for us to remember. You read the book of Genesis. Before the flood came, Peter tells us, the world that then existed perished. You read Genesis, the first chapters, you go, this is so strange, it's nothing like what we have today. Yeah, the Lord deliberately destroyed that in judgment. He bound up a bunch of demons beneath the earth, the worst of the worst. And that began what we call now normal life. Men's lifespan went down. We were allowed to eat uh, animals. Rain fell from the sky rather than coming up from the earth. That's going to happen again, where earth is going to be totally different. Li- normal life as we know it is going to be like a, a legend out of the distant past. And there's going to be kids who are born. And we're going to say, you know, it used to be that uh, everybody died. And we used to vote for our rulers. And they said, no, uh No, Jesus was in heaven and, and that evil devil below the ground was just running around tempting everybody. That must have been horrible. Jesus up in heaven and not on the earth? And Satan was just running around doing whatever he wanted? Well, what happened? Well, Jesus came back and he set up this kingdom that is going to last for a thousand years. Zechariah 14.8 says that there will be rivers that go out of Jerusalem that will heal the land, one to one sea and one to the other. Because remember, the seas are going to be turned to blood. Whatever that means, whether that's literal blood, whether that's pollution, radiation, doesn't matter. It's going to be healed by our Lord Jesus Christ. And if he's able to make fish in the the net of the worst fisherman in the world, Simon Peter, he he can refill the oceans with fish too, can't he? The world is going to be restored. Righteousness will be enforced. And how will it be enforced? With a rod of iron. That means sin will not be tolerated. And who's going to be the enforcer of that, the executioner of that? It's you. You and me. When we find out that this person struck his wife yesterday, dragged before us, well, we'll show leniency and mercy. Nope. Nope. Righteousness will be enforced with a rod of iron. This person stole from his neighbor. All right, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Say, so, well, that doesn't sound right. No, that's Jesus' kingdom. Right now, we are living in this age of grace where the Lord is permitting righteousness and unrighteousness to struggle against one another. But on those days, He's going to be enforcing it through His kings and queens. We're also, it says, going to be priests and priestesses. Still, the greatest job that we have is to be to preach the gospel to every new generation that's born. They're still going to have to make the choice to place their faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Now you say, well, what idiot wouldn't do that if they can see what the world is? Well, you'd be surprised about humanity's ability to get used to things. Look at verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. This is like something like out of the Lord of the Rings or the Wheel of Time, isn't it? Like the seals have been broken and the dark one has escaped. No, he hasn't escaped. He'll be released because Jesus is still in charge. And will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Oh, how many people would listen to the devil after this long? Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, that is Jerusalem. Jerusalem. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Even though Jesus will have been ruling righteously, and so will you, because you'll be glorified, your flesh will be glorified, and you'll no longer be subject to sin. Enforcing good with a rod of iron, Many will resent Jesus for that. You can even see these people today. They hate the thought of a God that would make us do the right thing. Or even to ask us to do the right thing. Many people rebel against what is good simply because they were asked to do it. Maybe you've had children that were like that. Hopefully we grow out of it, but you know that's in every single one of us. And that resentment will begin to grow, even after a millennium of A golden age. Then Satan will be released from his prison. And he will go around the whole world. And maybe there will be some person that does something wicked. Maybe somebody commits fornication. And righteousness is executed upon them. And maybe one of us is standing in the city square telling people, fornication is against God's law. It is evil. It is wickedness. And we'll be saying things like, don't you realize this is the kind of thing that brought about the great tribulation of a thousand years ago? Which, of course, none of them will remember. And they'll go home. And there'll be someone maybe just sitting in his garage somewhere, working on his car. You know, just maybe not happy, a little unsettled about what happened today. And then the devil will whisper in his ear, that's not right. That's not fair. And that thought will spark in that person's mind in a temptation that has not been known for a thousand years. He'll have no idea what it is and have no ability to resist it. He'll go, that's not fair. They should be allowed to choose. We should be allowed to choose. Jesus is a dictator and a tyrant. Jesus is a dictator, and it's, what did I say? But that thought's in there now, and Satan moves on to somebody else. I don't know where the other demons will be at this time. Maybe Satan will round them up, too, and the whole world slowly, 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 until people start having conversations in hushed tones around the dinner table. Maybe guys are at a, at a worship service, and they're standing out back, and one of them says, I don't know about all this, man. I'm so glad you said that, because I don't know about it. Shh, what if they hear us? And it'll start to begin, it'll start to grow, Until finally Satan will reveal himself to some of these people. And say, you know, I'm you're the devil, you're the dark one, you're the evil one, we've heard about you. He goes, what have you heard? You destroyed the whole world. I didn't destroy the whole world. Jesus did that. Jesus is the one that struck down the nations. All I've ever wanted is for people to be free. To be out from under his thumb. And people will begin to gather together. And begin to form groups. To form armies. And then finally... And one of those days, there's going to be a rebellion. Maybe somebody gets, is drawn forward to be punished or to be executed. And people begin to shout down their immortal kings and queens. And we'll know in that moment. Maybe the Lord will give us a heads up. But we'll know, he's back. He's back. I know what this is. I've seen this. And then we'll be out there pleading for people. Satan has been released. Don't listen to him. But it's not going to work. They're going to gather an army so big, it'll be like the sands of the seashore. And don't just think this is one proud march on Jerusalem. They're going to conquer and ravage every nation. They're going to march in the streets like animals, burning and destroying, killing, raping, looting, darkness and evil and sin unleashed again as God's people are driven back. And here will be you and I, the immortal kings and queens, saying, Lord, let us stop him. And God goes, they need to have a choice just as you had a choice. Until we're all back in the citadel of Jerusalem. It says here, the great plain. Zechariah 14.10 tells us that after the revelation is over, the whole world is going to be a plain. No more mountains, no more valleys. That's how bad it's going to be. And they march on Jerusalem. The ultimate rebellion. It says, Gog and Magog, which is a reference to Ezekiel 38 and 39, which I believe references Armageddon, but at the very least, it's the same kind of thing. It's happening again. We think, how could this happen twice? It happens every day, friends. Until they've surrounded Jesus' shining city of Jerusalem, the holy city. And then there will come Satan, probably riding some mockery of Jesus' white horse, and stand up and say, you've lost Messiah. You've lost Savior. All the world has gone after me. And we're come to take your city. We're not going to stand for it. You either let all these people die or we march on your city and you go. Just get out of here. We're tired of you. And there will be all of God's faithful people holed up in the city of Jerusalem, probably scared to death at the sand of the seashore army outside, led by this evil person that they thought was gone forever. But then what happens? Is Jesus threatened by Satan? You and I will know what's going to happen. We'll be breaking our hearts, but we know it's going to come. And Jesus, I I imagine, would take his place on the wall and point his finger down at Lucifer, the bright morning star that fell from heaven like lightning, and now is called that serpent of old, that seven-headed dragon, and said, Enough of you! Enough of your rebellion! I am king of kings, lord of lords. I paid for these people's souls with my blood, and your time is over. And then fire will descend from heaven and consume that army, consume that devil. And not only that, it'll consume heaven and earth and space and everything that exists. It'll all blow. It'll all catch fire. The final conflagration. 2 Peter 3, verse 10 says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Fire will come down from heaven and destroy the land around Jerusalem. The earth will burn. The fire will move out into space. Mars will catch fire. Venus. Mercury, our own sun, will then explode. The fire will spread out until every corner of the galaxy has burned with a fervent heat. That's the moment when Satan will join his evil cronies in the eternal lake of fire to burn forever. That's when Satan gets cast into hell. And true and righteous are your judgments, O Lord. It can't come a moment too soon to my mind to see that, that pretender... Sent to the place where he belongs. Can I remind y'all, Satan is not king of hell. Hell is Satan's final destination. That's where he's going to end up. No different than the pettiest sinner that he used to look down upon. It's a hard thing and a sober thing to consider that people prefer darkness to light, but they do. Well, if God would just give us a perfect environment, what about Adam and Eve? Well, that didn't count. More people. If I had a chance, the whole world will be given that chance. And they'll throw it back in Jesus' face. But Jesus will never be defeated. So imagine this. I mean, we're talking in cosmic terms now. All of creation has burned up. What's left? Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. The lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Verse 11 shows us that the only thing that is left in all of creation is the throne room of God. That's all that's left. All of creation has been burned up. So I don't know what that's going to feel like in terms of sensation when there's essentially no more place to put your feet, no more gravity, no more any of that. Spiritual. But then is the final resurrection. All creation has been burned up, and everyone will receive their bodies again. Everyone, even the wicked dead, from Al Capone down to your neighbor that hates God. And every soul will stand before God, the true and living judge, as Daniel 12 tells us, that all will awake. Every soul will awake and stand before God. Death and Hades are done away with forever. Death is the transition of your soul from this world to what is called Hades or Sheol in the Old Testament. The underworld, the the grave, the place where dead souls go. Why is it thrown into the lake of fire? Because there's no need for it anymore. Because the ultimate decisions are going to be made. Hades is just a holding pen until Judgment Day, and there's no more need for it. The underworld is gone. Because judgment will be final. And the only criterion of judgment on that day is are you registered in the book? There's a bunch of books. I would say maybe one for each person. And then the book of life. The book of life is the name of everybody that has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone who has repented and called upon the name of the Lord for salvation. Their name is written in the book of life. But if you don't want that, if you don't want to believe in Jesus, if you say, I don't really think I'm into all this stuff, well, you have your own books to deal with. Except that book is going to contain all of your works. Well, good. I think I've done some pretty good things. I think I might be able to balance it out. You misunderstand. If one sin is found written in that book, the penalty is death. One sin. Not more good things than bad things. You are incapable of doing enough. Books only condemn. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, you know this. By grace you are saved through faith, not of works. By works of the law, Paul says in Galatians, no man will be justified. You say, that's not fair. How am I supposed to know? Hey, you're getting told right now. The church has been sent out to tell as many people as possible that judgment is coming, what judgment will be like, and what you've got to do to be ready. And the answer is you've got to call upon the name of Jesus. That's why Jesus died. So that he could write your name in the book and throw your books into the fire. Well, how do I get that? You repent. You look at, you got on the thing about your life, on one side you've got all the books of all the things you've done, and the other one is the book of life. And the Lord is putting a pen in your hand called faith. He says, you either can go to heaven with this and be judged by that, or you can stand before God with your name written in the guest registry. Which one would you like? And people every single day say, I'll take my chances. Even though God has already told us you have no chance apart from Jesus. But if you are in Jesus, you have every chance. You and I will not be trembling before the Lord that day. We'll know. Jesus is my Lord. But for those who do not, it is eternal burning, the worm undying, the outer lonely darkness forever. Well, at least I'll be with my friends. What an adolescent thing to say. You won't be with your friends. You will be alone. You will be alone in eternal torment, fire, darkness, worms eating you alive. You'll be incapable of dying because death has already happened to you. Is that really what you want to do? Do you really feel real brave and bold and tough for saying, I'm not scared of hell? Then you're a fool if you're not scared of hell. That doesn't make you tough. It makes you stupid to not be afraid of hell. you trying to scare me into salvation? Yeah. You ought to be scared. You should be running, screaming from your sin and throwing yourself before the Lord and saying, God, I need whatever you got. My great-grandfather, when he was saved, my grandfather was saved first when he was in middle school. He was invited to come to a Jesus film at his friend's church, and his friend said, please don't make me go by myself. And my grandfather said, well, there'll be girls there. And he said, yes. (laughs) Don't underestimate those youth ministries, man. (laughs) Well, my 11-year-old grandfather placed his faith in Jesus Christ that night. He came home and told his whole family. Everyone became saved in his family eventually, except for his father, who told him, I thought I raised a man. I didn't raise you to believe all that sissy stuff. You do whatever you want. You just keep it out of my house. Big, tough Leonard Warner. But then one day, when my grandfather was getting baptized, he said, Dad, will you please at least come to my baptism? All right, fine, I'll come to your stupid baptism. My great-grandfather's sitting in the back row, ready to duck out the second that preacher said amen. When the, the pastor said, if oh, there's anybody that wants to be saved today, will you please come forward? Up got my great-grandfather, sprinting down the aisle in his Sunday suit and throwing himself at the altar and began to pray. And my, great, my grandfather was so excited, but he's kind of embarrassed, too. Because he's like, he just, Dad, you just kind of got up and ran in the middle your ties, flapping in the breeze. And, <laughs> so what was that about? And my, my great-grandpa Leonard, he said, I was so afraid that I would die before I got to the front and got a chance to repent of my sins. And I knew what a sinner I was, that if I didn't get down there, I didn't have a chance. That's what it means when the Bible says, flee the wrath to come. Flee the wrath to come. Judgment day comes when the world rejects the kingdom of Christ. And do you realize that you are only a breath away from writing the last stroke in the story of your life? Do you realize that? It might be today. It might be tomorrow. And you're either putting the finishing touches on your books of works or you're resting in the fact that your name has been written in blood in the Lamb's book of life. In Christ... Our works no longer stand in judgment of us. Do you know that now, if you are in in Christ, your works serve you? They serve you. Because 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that the Christian is going to have a different kind of judgment. It's not about heaven or hell. It's about rewards. The Lord is going to reward His church. And the only thing that's going to be evaluated in your books is, what can I give you a prize for? So now, even if I sin, I'm heartbroken, but I also know but that's been paid for. And when I do something right, I go, cha-ching! I don't think we should be motivated by rewards. Well, tell that to Jesus, who chose to motivate us with rewards. <laughs> Listen, friends, I, would, I want to warn you away from hell. I do. If you're not, a savior, you're not a believer, you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I'm warning you that hell is real, and it's your destination. But I would much rather take you by the hand and say, let's go to the kingdom together. Yes, there's something to run away from, but don't you know there's something wonderful and glorious to run to? Don't you want to live in that kingdom I just described? Don't you want to rule and reign as an immortal king or queen of Jesus? Don't you want to judge angels? I kind of want to judge angels. (laughs) I got a few questions for my guardian angel, actually. (laughs) I almost broke my neck playing football. What were you doing, on a smoke break or something? What was going on? <laughs> to rule and reign. They have the opportunity for a thousand years to teach generation after generation that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and then take them to go see Him. To live in an age when there's no temptation, no sin, no evil. Righteousness is rigidly and inflexibly enforced. While the grace of Jesus continues to flow to everybody who believes. Don't you want to live in that day in that age and then move on what we're going to talk about next week to the next adventure? To the new heaven and the new earth, whatever that will be like? Don't you want to live life now away from shame and guilt and fear all the time? You heard us singing this morning. We're happy people. Because we know, every individual in this room knows how it feels to hear God say, I forgive you. Don't you want that? Don't you want to dwell in the kingdom? And if you want more information, by the way, go read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He'll tell you all about the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? The Greek philosopher Plato theorized that the most perfect form of government would be what he called an enlightened monarch, a philosophical King. Somebody who had absolute power, but was absolutely good. Somebody that had the ability to do whatever he wanted and nobody could stop him, but because he was perfect, it was always the right decision. I agree with him. <laughs> but here's the problem. There is no such person. As the founder said, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. There is no such person, except for one. His name is Jesus. And one day that is exactly the kind of kingdom he is coming to establish. He's not going to be a philosopher king or an enlightened monarch. He is the son of God, the king of kings, who will rule in righteousness with a rod of iron for a thousand years. The government will be upon his shoulders. And of the increase of his government and of power and of love and glory, there will be no end. That's our King Jesus. And the sad thing is, it won't be enough for most people. But it could be for you if you will allow the Lord to write your name in the book of life today. I'm taking reservations for the kingdom, friend. Only thing it costs you, renounce all that stuff that's killing you anyway. Bow the knee to the King now and serve Him for the rest of your life. And when you die, it will not be to the horror of non-existence or even to the the painful holding pen of Hades. It'll be to the presence of Jesus that'll take you by the shoulders, look you in the eye and say, well done, my good and faithful servant.